This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. We have a great program uh, for everyone here this evening uh, about a part of the world uh, with a troubled past, but hopefully a more promising future. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, as the vast African nation is known today, uh, has had a long tragic history marked by centuries of exploitation of its rich minerals, its people, uh, and its wildlife. But it also remains a land of resilience and resistance to injustice and injury, filled with individuals who today are fighting back against the forces of international exploitation and deadly government crackdowns to make things better for their communities and their families. This dichotomy is powerfully described and explored in the new book, Congo Stories, Battling Five Centuries of Exploitation and Greed. The book reflects the joint efforts of several people uh, who are here with us this evening. One is John Prendergast, a human rights advocate and anti-corruption activist, and the author or co-author of 11 books, uh, who's been working to raise awareness of African conflicts for several decades. In Congo stories, John recounts both the plundering of the country over the years and its evolving social movements. His narrative is complemented by profiles of Congolese activists, professionals, and artists who are pushing for a better future. Profiles put together by Fidel Bafalembe, a Congolese field researcher who coordinates a network of a dozen civil society organizations focused on better management of Congo's mineral wealth. Congo Stories also is filled with captivating photos capturing life in the country. The photos were taken by Canadian actor and director Ryan Gosling. Now, Ryan met uh, John Prendergast some years ago and inspired by John's work and similar efforts by others, has since traveled not only to Congo, uh, but also to Chad and Uganda, promoting peace and, and change in conflict regions and helping call attention to their plight. Also a part of the group this evening is Shushu Namagabe, a Congolese radio journalist uh, who's reported on the, the widespread use of rape as a weapon of war and has trained young women to be journalists in Congo. Uh, she's written an afterword to Congo Stories. Now, for those of you not aware of the most recent developments, Congo faces a critical political moment later this month, with national elections scheduled two days before Christmas to determine a successor to President Joseph Kabila, who's ruled since the assassination of his father 17 years ago. His term uh, was to have ended two years ago, uh, but the vote has, has been delayed repeatedly. If it goes forward, it would mark a powerful transition of power for the first time in Congo's modern history. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me first in welcoming John, Fidel, and Chushu. And uh, after they uh, talk a little bit about their book, Ryan will come out uh, a little later, and, um, and then they'll uh, go through some of your questions. So please give them all a hand. Well, thank you so much for that introduction, and thank you, everyone, for showing up. 
Uh, tonight, we, uh, we really appreciate the idea of being sponsored by Politics and Prose, everybody's favorite bookstore in DC. And uh, so it's, a, it's an honor to, to have this, this forum. And uh, we have a confession to make, really. This is not really just a book about Congo. It's a book about all of us. Uh, without knowing it, about how we're deeply connected to Shushu, to Fidel, and their, and their country's history. It's about how we and, and our ancestors are deeply responsible, without knowing it, for Congo's multi-generational crisis. It's about how we in America are more dependent, without knowing it, on Congo than Congo is on us, despite billions of dollars in aid that we send. And most importantly, it's about how deeply empowered we all are, probably without knowing it, to work in solidarity with Shushu and Fidel and the other upstanders in Congo to help bring about real change in that country. For the, for the past 500 years, Congo evokes the image for me of a vampire's ball. Human traffickers, kings, colonists, presidents, tycoons, bankers, mineral smugglers, and elephant poachers have all colluded with Congolese leaders to loot the people and the natural resources of that country. So our dependence on Congo began way back in the late 1400s and early 1500s, when the Portuguese arrived in Congo, just as the Europeans were arriving in a number of places throughout Africa, and soon thereafter began enslaving and exporting Congolese people. The need for labor back on the plantations of the New World here drove the dramatic expansion of the transatlantic slave trade. One quarter of the enslaved people in the American South working on the plantations were from Congo. Let's fast forward now to the latter half of the 1800s. So just as plastic is omnipresent today, ivory was sort of the high-end plastic of the, late, the middle to late 1800s. The demand was skyrocketing, and the biggest elephant tusks in the world that provided the best ivory for this demand was, were from the Congo. Most of us read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness in high school. We remember the story, despite the fact, the racist undertones of the book, we remember that the horror that was being described, and that was all about the, the European scramble to loot the ivory from Congo, the killing of the elephants and people to steal the ivory treasures out of, out of that country. Now let's fast forward to the late 1800s. The inflatable rubber tire is invented. Quickly, we see the automobile industry is initiated and dr dramatically expands. That creates a tremendous demand for rubber. And the largest, after the Amazon, the largest naturally occurring rubber tree forests in the world were in Congo. So King Leopold, the, the uh, Belgian king at this time, became the only person in the world to actually own a colony. All the other countries in Africa, all the other territories in Africa that were colonized by the Europeans were colonized by countries. Leopold owned it personally. And he undertook 
a massive extraction, violent extraction of rubber for the needs of American and European auto industry that led to the deaths of 10 million Congolese people. Fast forward again to World War I as we deepen our dependence on this country of Congo. When the war begins, massive increase in the, in the production of weapon systems, the mineral that is in every, was in every weapon system at the time was copper. In fact, someone wrote at the time, you cannot kill people in large numbers without copper. And the largest naturally occurring deposit in the world, of course, Congo. So the race was on, again, to loot the resources, to feed the military-industrial complex that was driving war in Europe. Fast forward to World War II. Albert Einstein writes a letter to FDR and says, Nazis are going to win this race for the technology to build an atomic bomb. We have to secure, you have to secure the uranium deposits because if they get the uranium, they're gonna build the bomb first with predictable consequences for the war, the World War II. And so this uh, alarm bell set off what we all know about, the Manhattan Project, but what we only just learned about because they were, information was just declassified was a CIA operation deployed to Congo because 99% of the world's uranium appropriate for an atomic bomb was in one mine in southern Congo. And so CIA deploys fairly large contingent of people to secure it and bring the uranium out, extract it. Of course, the workers not knowing anything about the uh, radiation they were being exposed to, and they went across the country through the, on the river and uh, through the forest, no roads, and then across the Atlantic Ocean with the U-boats trying to take it down. And the rest is history, as they say. Fast forward again to the Cold War, and now, Instead of the Germany, we're competing with, the United States is competing with the uh, Soviet Union for the precious minerals, uranium, copper, and other minerals in the Congo. And Congo became an independent country during this period of time, had its first democratic election, elected a populist prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, who was dedicated to the idea that not only political decolonization should occur, but also economic decolonization. These arrangements of vicious extraction, violent extraction, should be altered. Fairer terms of trade ought to occur between Africa and the West. Eisenhower was having none of that. The Europeans were having none of that. So the Belgians and the U.S. conspired to assassinate Lumumba. We tried, sent poison toothpaste and a number of other things to try to kill him. Didn't work. The Belgians quickly made a deal with a rebel group, they arrested, I mean, they kidnapped the prime minister and executed him. We, shortly thereafter, the United States supported a coup uh, and imposed a, a leader who many of you have heard of, Mobutu Sese Seko, who stayed in power for three decades and became one of the, the wealthiest leaders in the world. We have other stories of greed. Gold, forests, gorillas, diamonds, oil in the book. But let's fast forward to the purpose of this, and I'm almost done to, for this history, because you need to understand the context before we can get to the present. We fast forward to the late 1990s, when we saw a dramatic uh, expansion 
of the in the use of cell phones and laptops and other electronic products. The main ingredients that power those products uh, are in part sourced from Eastern Congo, which set off a, a looting spree that in, ended up involving nine African countries and many, many multinational corporations. This conflict that began first in 1996, 19, then a second one in 1998, driven by the ripples of the genocide in neighboring Rwanda in 1994, ended up being called Africa's first world war. Five and a quarter million people died as a result of this conflict, fueled by the demand for these minerals, tin, tantalum, and tungsten, and gold, three Ts in gold. We then fast forward again, because it's not over yet, to the present. And the, as the auto industry in America and around the world retools, and electric cars are viewed pretty much conventional wisdom at this point by the industry as the future of cars powered by lithium batteries, the main ingredient of which is cobalt. And 65 to 70% of the world's reserves uh, are in Congo, a significant percentage of that being mined, at least the artisanal mining, the mining by hand being done by children. So that history of massive ex exploitation benefiting us, benefiting America and Europe and over the centuries, and now, of course, China has become the latest and most aggressive entrant into this looting neighboring countries, all kinds of different actors. That's not the whole story. The Congolese people are battling back and have been for quite some time against this tide of injustice to, to change the equation you know, change the narrative of how we talk about things, to change this historical legacy of greed, of repression, and of state looting. So I want to turn now to my friend and colleague, Shushu Namagebe. And she has an extraordinary personal story, but we want to talk to Shushu about one of the great, one of the, 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 the most poignant legacies of all of this that I've just described to you is this spike that has occurred since the 1990s in violence against women and sexual violence. And Shushu has dedicated her life to uh, addressing this scourge in, in Eastern Congo. And you've worked with all kinds of women's organizations. You're a journalist. Uh, uh, you've uh, been part of the effort to expose. Can you tell us a little bit about the dynamics of this gender-based violence crisis and what women's groups and others and journalists associations and others are doing to try to make a difference. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for being here. You know, during all the repeated wars, as John described, uh, from 1996, we saw a new phenomenon and we heard that rape and sexual violence was used as a weapon to destroy a community. The attackers used sexual violence for three objectives, to frighten, to make a vengeance, and to force residents to leave their, their land 
so that they can control the lands and mines. I remember all these women who came to us because I joined the, the radio station in 1997, just after the outbreak of the first war. And I, start, I started reporting about the war, its consequences. And I remember all those women, all these women we met, and who told us their stories who told us their horrors. It was unbelievable. It was hard for us. I was young, just a young girl, from freshly uh, came from high school, but I had to hear, to listen to that stories, to that horrors. And I remember I met a woman who after the rape was forced to eat the flesh of her kids, freshly killed in front of her. I met women, a group of women. After the rape, they were burned in their vagina with fuel inside. Those women to whom they shot in the vagina after being raped by five or 10 perpetrators. From all these times, we couldn't talk about what was happening to women. We didn't have even a word to describe it. And in 2001, civil society, women's movement, women's organization started raising their voices, denouncing, denouncing that phenomenon given the dramatic magnitude of rape and its atrocities. Like us as a journalist, we gave the voice to survivors and we led the campaign challenging silence women media against rape and sexual violence. We went to the ICC, International Criminal Court, I testified in front of the US Senate and we made other many advocacies. Other women NGOs worked in network, created synergies to bring psychosocial support, economical assistance, judicial, judicial assistance, sorry, and above all, the medical care. Women paid a heavy price of these repeated wars. They deserve to be praised for their tremendous capacity of resilience. I couldn't imagine being interviewing a woman after the descri description of uh, the horrors. I couldn't imagine that she could sh show me a smile. They are strong enough. They are strong and they continue working hard. They never gave up. And that's why I have hope because of, because of this tireless work of young women.
they are still doing on the ground to make change happen. The work of Soraya, Honorata, Justine, Neema, and Dus. I remember when Dus started working with us at AFM. She was 16 years old. She was very young. She get trained, and now I'm proud she's the one who is leading AFM today. Even she's leading the women's radio, Mama Radio in Bukavu. I have hope because there are people like Dr. Denim Mukwege who are doing extraordinary work to save life. Not only he saved my life because I was almost dying from a complicated pregnancy, but also the way he sacrificed himself. He was attacked at his home, his guards killed. He decided to leave the country. But a few months later, women from an island in Egypt decided to collect crops, to sell those, uh, the crops and to collect money so that they can send him the ticket because they needed him to be with them. That's why I'm proud of the Peace Nobel Prize that was given to him and Nadia. And it brings again another hope because it will bring spotlight to the fight against sexual violence in Congo. His acceptance speech last Monday was powerful. And I encourage you to watch the recording of this speech. He appealed for justice. He called the international community to finally consider the mapping, the mapping project report and its recommendation. And I hope that from this will have a special court for the Democratic Republic of Congo. And another hope is from this book, Congo Stories. It tells the true story of Congo, and it brings people to be interested and know more about some of those who are working tirelessly for change. We still have hope because celebrities like Roy and Gosling, Robin Wright, Ben Affleck, Diana von Furstenberg and others are sacrificing their precious time to commit for the cause of Congo. I have hope because of you, you who are attending your love, your love and commitment, and any act that you may pause will push for policy check. And we hope that this will bring a bright future for the Congolese people. And I'm convinced that the change in the DRC will come through women. Thank you.
Thank you, Shushu. I appreciate those comments so much. Um, Fidel, uh, you've lived, as has Shushu, in the epicenter of the violence that has ripped apart part of the east of Congo for many years, in part, not fully, but in part driven by this thirst for conflict minerals, as we call them, the minerals that power the products we use every day. But you've worked with many other courageous uh, upstanders and organizations to, to expose the corruption behind this minerals trade and, and to work for, for years to change the situation because the progress is kind of stunning from where, we, where the situation was even just 10 years ago to where it is now. Can you tell us how you and your colleagues on the ground uh, in all of these incredibly interesting and diverse organizations, Congolese organizations, how you've been able to make those changes and make that difference for the people of your region? Good. Um, Shushu, thank you so much. Uh, I always present you as my deity uh, for a good reason, you know. And thank you so much for giving me the flow. Um, but allow me, and maybe the audience, I would ask them to allow me, because I just, I just don't feel I can take the flow without a shout out to uh, my revered ancestor, Lumumba, whom I feel uh, as if I was representing here, whom I feel I was, as if I was speaking on his behalf. And of course, to Dennis Mukwege. Um, I always feel I am uh, so lucky because I consider myself as a survivor, uh, rather than just a property of King Leopold. You know, it's not easier to rely on just hope. But the reality is that that is all the Congolese people are left with. Hope. And hope brings me to the U.S. Hope turned me into an activist, along with my fellows. But yes, I stick to that because I'm uh, extremely optimistic. And I would like my fellows here, uh, fathers, young kids, um, those who are also in the 40s like me, to be, to be optimistic. Not, don't feel guilty, but seize this opportunity that, yes, your parents did not know. That's me, Fidel Bafilemba, my ancestors, my fellow countrymen and women. They had been making your technological advancements. That King Leopold is responsible for the killing of over 10 million Congolese people, half of the Congolese population at a time. Don't feel guilty. So, out of that hope, I coordinate a coalition of 16 human rights groups on the ground. And no matter the discourse, no matter the critics, 
and I like the academics, you know, so much. Because sometimes you would, you label Congo conflict as ethnic tensions. You would label Congo conflict as land dispute. Uh, of course, I do agree. We have land disputes. We have ethnic tensions. And men and women fight each other in my country. Yes. So do you here. <laughs> but honestly speaking, if you want to be intellectually correct and honest, you will not ever forget that link that for over five centuries, Congo has been making your pride, technologically speaking, that you would have never made the atomic bomb without over 90% of my uranium coming from Chingolobwe mine. Well, that you would not be enjoying these beautiful gadgets <laughs> that I can speak to you at a million distance with a McCall team. But what is the price that we're paying as human beings? Oh, agree with me that we are less human beings as you are. But if you agree that I'm your equal. And by the way, you just told me about the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we just celebrated its 17th anniversary. And you tell me I am born equal with equal right. Oh, yes. Show me that today. And join in with me. Prove that I am equal. No. I think I want to move further, instead of just living by hope, hoping for a better future, hoping that, okay, my fellow American people, they will one day wake up, I would like to seize this opportunity and see it for myself. So in the Congo, It's not so easy for me to convey the thousands and thousands of human rights groups, youth movements like Lucha, Filimi, and others, like Dr. Mukwege, Jitsin Masika, and other women fighting for human rights. But I would like to pick just this revered activist young woman story called Rebecca. You might have known her because she's been to the Congress a number of times. But this young woman, I used to be her teacher at the University of Goma. And she's the kind of young girls that have been outraged by the potentials that we have. 
30 trillion US dollars in minerals reserves alone. 30 trillion, you would give me, I don't know how much of this auditorium here, or how many of your metros or buildings at the State Department and so forth. I could, I could build thousands and thousands of that with 30 trillion US dollars. But in addition to that, the second largest rainforest after Amazon on this planet, to what avail? 54% of the entire African continent fresh waters, to what avail? Because you come home, those who have visited me in Goma, we spend even a week without no running water, no electricity, despite all this potential. So Rebecca comes to me and says, but how come Lake Kivu, I mean, it's just right here. And we have over 250 international aid agencies. I'm not blaming them. Some of them, they are beautiful, good-hearted persons, but the institutions. And still, no running water. And the lady comes to me, outraged with all that, and she says, no. Rebecca didn't just say things to me, but she colludes with her colleagues, namely Ligangulula, who was killed in a fire in his home, on, I mean in July, this year. Fred Bauma and others, they come together. And the first action they did is that they mobilized their community to take to the street and claim for clean water. But, but imagine in Washington, D.C., taking to the street and claiming fresh water. We're still doing that. And we don't have it. You know what will happen to Rebecca? She was kidnapped by the intelligence service. And she was kept in detention for two weeks just for doing that. But it's never through cold waters on her heart. She came back and mobilized people again. When they saw that they were being cracked down on, they said, okay, let's found a movement and call it struggle for change. And they decided that for them to never be identified where they are working or to avoid any dispute, leadership dispute, they said, okay, we're not going to be registered. The second thing, and you're going to be amazed by that, coincides with the taking off of Goma, my city, by the M23 rebel, a rebel group that was spearheaded, fomented by Rwanda. Rebecca mobilizes again her fellows to walk from Goma to Bunagana, where the rebel were, hold, I mean, uh, uh, headquartered. That's 75 kilometers. It might sound, it might seem too short for you, but in Congo to walk or drive 
75 kilometers that can take you days. And of course, they plan to walk for two days. So Rebecca comes to me because I knew, I mean, she knew that I had bought into her effort. And we make plannings, how much it's going to cost each one. We figured it out at least $15 each. So they can buy water, a bottle of water. They can buy a nut to sleep on. Oh my God. We mobilized hardly 200 US dollars. Despite that, Rebecca and her colleague, they walked. But I think the strong message that he sent to me is that we have been impoverished to an extent that for a salvation action like that, we're unable to mobilize as much money as to feed those kids, young boys, young men, and do their action. But Rebecca, they never stopped that, that far. Today, as they had become a pro-democracy movement, the leading youth movement claiming political change, Kabila, who was vying for a third term, has been obliged to step down and back off. But in addition to that, they had joined in the campaign against conflict minerals and other things. And today we have conflict-free supply chains in Congo. They had joined in building libraries, a project that I'm spearheading here and collecting funds for that. So numerous things that people are doing in the Congo, of course, taking hope as their fuel for engine, but also knowing that they can rely upon you. And I think that's uh, gonna be my closing uh, ask, if I can make it. In the US here, I know you had come up tremendous thing as a nation, but I don't wanna speak to that. I wanna speak to the youth movement, and particularly the conflict-free initiatives in campuses, in universities. Because I would ask you to give me dollars, because you can. But as much as to pay reparation for what has been committed by your ancestors, I think you will be unable to do that. And that will be too much of me demanding. But at least, if you can make sure that you wanna buy a cell phone, demand that the company you're buying from that goes conflict-free, that will be enough for me. That will force those companies to change their policies. If you're part of a university, make sure that your university, they are demanding that companies they source their equipment from go conflict-free, just that. Who are the students here? I love you so much. May I call you my superstars, right? And at least lean to you, stick to you, rely upon you that you're going to join me. I'm not asking you your dollars, as little or as much as you might have. 
but just be demanding that you come and stop bullshit they have been doing back in Africa and particularly in Congo. Thank you so much. Thank you, Fidel. So we're right on schedule. We are going to shift now to uh, the question and answer part and invite our, our fourth member of our team, Ryan Gosling, up to the stage. Where are you, Ryan? So in this situation, we got a whole bunch of questions in advance from, all of, from many of you in this room, and a number of themes have emerged as I've gone through them. So I think I'm going to group some of these together and make them very simple to give uh, maximum time to, to our panelists. And we can start since you've just entered the fray here, Ryan. Very simple. How'd you get involved? What, what led you to being part of this, this project and to Congo? Um, well, you're, you're largely responsible for that. Uh, I met John. Uh, in 2005, I, I had, um, um, you know, sort of uh, what we've been introduced through mutual friends. And I had an opportunity to go to, uh, well, first to 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 the Darfur refugee um, border in Chad, and then to Uganda, and then, uh, you know, I just sort of became really interested in the work that the Enough Project was doing. I was given an opportunity to uh, to visit Fidel in in Congo, so. Um, it was just an opportunity to go and uh, see sort of firsthand what, what you were working on and, uh, and uh, you know, see, see if, if I could be useful in some way. Great. Well, you are. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're just going to kind of move around here. Uh, there's a, a few questions that I think we could summarize, Shushu, for you that really are ultimately about justice and accountability in a, in a place that where the rule of law, you know, has been so challenged. Can you tell us a bit about your thoughts about what could bring accountability for some of the kinds of crimes that have been discussed today? Thank you very much. As you say, you said, in Congo, uh, justice is still a, a big challenge. And uh, women are still... Uh, seeking for justice. Survivors are still seeking for justice. Uh, we saw some uh, local cases brought to the court, local courts. For us, it was the first step, but not successful because after uh, they were brought to court, some perpetrators. There was no reparation, nothing done. Some who were arrested were released after. It's, it's still a big challenge. That's why we hope that with uh, the Peace Nobel Prize that was given to Dr. Mukwege, it will, uh, it will help somewhere to ask for that, for the international community to, uh, to set up 
uh, a special court for Congo. Women are seeking for justice. Women are seeking for reparation. As Fidel said, they are human beings. They've lost their dignity. But what was done in justice? Nothing. And impunity. Impunity in Congo, it's the main, I, I, I can say, the main disease. Because despite the rape that was committed by rebels, civilians copied because of the impunity. Babies were raped. Babies of nine months, years old. It's a kind of disease because of the impunity. So just a takeaway from that, for, for those of you looking for a sort of a, a hook to, to uh, hang on to, the, the, um, there has been a great movement within Congo to support a uh, mixed court, a court that would involve both jurists, uh, legal professionals from Congo and internationally. This kind of a model has been used in other places around the world. Um, and the push is on, the parliamentarians, a number of parliamentarians, and the many civil society groups have pushed for this. It has not succeeded yet, but it is an idea that will, I think, will come someday. And of course, the International Criminal Court, uh, Congo has been referred to the International Criminal Court, so there are cases, in, and there are a number of cases inside the country that have been taken up against some of the perpetrators. Still, it's, it's not getting to the senior most. People are not being held. Slowly, steadily, there's a movement within Congo, especially led by civil society, trying to make a difference, and that's pretty exciting. Um, Fidel, there are a number of questions about corruption, and that's such an interesting topic because you know everybody's like, ah, this, the, the cursory look at at Africa from the nightly news or the or the or the headlines, you know, this corrupt leaders, but of course. Most of the money is being made outside the country by bankers and, 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 and mining companies and oil companies. That's where the real, you know, it takes two to tango. So many of the questions that we received are like, you know, what do you do about corruption in Congo? I mean, I think people are talking about what do you do about the corrupt leaders, but you know well it's a much bigger issue. So what would you say as a starting point? To get well... You know, sometimes, um, <clears throat> or I would say even most of the time, I feel so ashamed because I, I should be in front of these beautiful souls praising my leaders, praising my president. But I, I mean, I, I would not just be honest with myself, honest with my people, because all what my leaders have been is to be successors, to be like sons of King Leopold. And unfortunately, sometimes we go by those labels. Uh, Congolese people, they mostly see, I mean, when I, I hand out my passport just to get a visa, 
If it's not you, you writing the embassy, no, I'm not going to get it. Simply because Democratic Republic of Congo, they know that's the heart of darkness. But what people do not relate to or remember, consciously or unconsciously, unconsciously, is that we were turned into what we are today. And those folks, for the most part, they are coping. The legacy of the Belgian kingdom and their king, Leopold. That's not spoken, highlighted enough. But what are we doing or what should be done? I have, forgive me, I have no mercy. Put me in a position of power. Maybe I'm going to be a populist, a dictator, whatever. But I would have no mercy for those guys. I'd lock them in. That's why I have been so very adamant. And those who want to join me in that battle, to making sure that Kabila and Kabila's family, Kabila's henchmen and henchwomen, they are put and maintained on sanctions list. Their money is a freezing. They have travels bans. Because, tell you what, those people are siphoning Kangalese natural resources. The money they are getting, they're coming to buy mansions here, palaces here. When they get sick, they do not get in Kangalese hospitals. No, they're coming to you guys. If any children education of theirs they are bringing their children here what about me what about Shushu what about Rebecca and of course when they take the floor to the security council to the UN assemblies oh human rights we are equal we are equal and they cannot be treated in the same hospital as I am they cannot have their kids study in the same school and as mine. So, no. Of course, that's going to be, that's the international, I think, uh, sphere where everybody can get engaged in demanding sanctions for the Kangalese, thieves, hyenas. But on the ground, of course, I have been collecting evidence so that hopefully, the criminal court, the special courts that my sister is calling for, if they ever come to Congo, yes, are going to be a witness. Here are the files. So if you want to join me in that effort, first, demanding that the Congress, the Senate, the administration of Trump maintains Kabila, Kabila's family and his henchmen on the sanction list, I would be the most grateful. And Lumumba is going to thank you. I think we want to join you, man. So wherever you're going to go afterwards, we're going. Which, which bar are you going to, Fidel? Um, right, again, there was a few questions here. Them kind of collect them all together that were along the lines of this. What were some of the, you know, memorable things that uh, that struck you the most from the trip, and 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 what did you 
carry home with you most from that journey there? I think, um, well, you know, a memory that's, that's very strong, uh, you know, it was sort of like my first experience in Congo, which was the, the, uh, uh, the stark contrast between Rwanda and Congo and the, 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 um, the border, because almost really from one side of the street to another, it just becomes a completely different reality. Uh, once you enter Congo, it's just, you know, these, these, these uh, roads are sort of, you know, symbolic of a road of, of, uh, of, of, of hardship. And uh, I remember we were trying to get from, from point A to point B, and it just was extremely difficult. And, and somebody in the car said, uh, you know, if you want to keep people from rising up, don't pave the roads. And, uh, you know, it just, it, it was this constant reminder of, of, uh, of, of the Congolese sort of uh, reality. And, you know, I, I, we didn't go with the intention of the, the, these photographs being in a book or, or, or I didn't know what they would be useful for. Um, but one thing I was struck by was just, you know, having heard these stories and then also, uh, you know, the, the uh, personal stories that we were hearing on, on this trip, there just was this, this theme of uh, un, un, uh, an unwavering uh, uh, resilience and, a, and a, um, uh, you know, an unwillingness to be broken. And these expressions of, of hope, you know, uh, certainly when you would hear about the, the movements that, that uh, were being started on the ground, um, Shushu's uh, incredible organization or uh, the incredible work that Fidel is doing, but in, in smaller ways as well, and even just in, in very, you know, even in, in, in some of the, the pictures, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, a kid dressing up like Spider-Man or, or uh, you know, a, you know uh, a woman bringing home twins in the neighborhood uh, coming home, uh, to greet her and, and celebrate. You know, there's, there's just this, um, this really powerful sense of hope, and it's a hope that's generated from, from people like Fidel and Shushu and and, uh, you know, I, I felt when I was there, there was this sort of, I didn't, again, know what, what, the, what this would become, uh, but there was an expectation that we would, uh, we would share these pictures and that we would tell these stories, and that we would find some way to, uh, to, to pass this on. So I was really, um, you know, grateful to, to Fidel and, and John for you know creating the idea for this book so that we could sort of deliver on that expectation in some way. Great. Well, we're coming in for a landing because we need time for, for those of you that want a book sign because we end up talking to people and stuff. So we got to we better start it now or else we'll be here all night. But uh, the last thing I think just to group together some some things that uh, that sort of emerge in in in, in a number of these questions. It's like, it really is builds from what Ryan was just saying. Like, 
you know, what we normally hear about Congo, like what's the latest one story? Of course, it's Ebola. You know, what's the story? And then what's the story we're going to hear about the next couple of weeks is all the election violence. I mean, it's all in, where, where, where is the hope that we can pull away from that? And I think we've heard some uh, versions of that. And then how do you tie that to what we can do? Uh, what, 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 can, what can people in this room, what can people listening uh, and watching do to make a difference? And so uh, once I saw all those questions, I realized we really had to try to answer those. And, and I'm going to give my best shot at it. I wrote a few things down. Uh, and, and, and it's rooted in this idea that, you, you know, we have this 500-year history where the world has just gone and taken whatever it wants from Congo. And, 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 and this has contributed directly to our standard of living. Like, this is why Europe and America advanced in many ways so rapidly. It's not an indirect thing. It's very direct. So finally, this one-way equation of our benefits and tremendous costs for Congo is being addressed, is being attacked, is being challenged, is being changed. And just sitting here and, and thinking about, as I listen to the discussion, what 10 quick rays of hope, just, just to get us on the right road going out of here. So just two weeks ago, there's a, there's a major, I mean, I don't know if you guys read this New York Times article, there's a major lobbying campaign. The president of Congo has paid all these K Street firms to, to lobby and try to stop sanctions from, and well, just two weeks ago, in the face of that lobbying campaign, the money being thrown around, Congress passed a bill uh, supporting what Fidel just pressed us to, to support him on, which is uh, in support of codification of the sanctions, escalating the pressure, the financial pressure on the regime to hold a free and fair election, to stop stealing the money from, from, from the country. And the vote, it wasn't close. It wasn't a nip and tuck, you know, boy, there's a lot of money coming in, so it's going to be a problem. 374 to 11. Every once in a while, you know, they do the right thing. Yeah. This is stunning to me, frankly. I thought we were going to lose. Now, that's the first ray of hope. Second ray of hope. Look, we've talked about this. The money that's being made by the corruption in Congo is primarily being made outside of Congo. So the president of the country, hopefully only for the next couple of weeks, his main commercial partner is an Israeli diamond dealer, okay? This guy has been laundering the money and the, and the stolen assets of this country for, uh, uh, since President Kabila came to power. Um, well, he didn't count on somebody in this audience taking the job in the Treasury Department, now number two acting person in the Treasury Department, person named Seagal Mandelker, okay? So, somebody that toils in relative obscurity in the Treasury Department, nobody knows, probably Kabila may not even know. But, deep commitment to human rights. So, when presented with the evidence about this tremendous theft of the resource of the state, of this money laundering that goes on. Working with colleagues throughout the National Security Council, the State Department, the, the various entities with 
equity and stake in the decision, the United States government imposed sanctions on Dan Gertler, on his main business partner, and 33 of the companies that he uses to hide and move money out of the country. This is stunning. What immediately caused tremendous damage and difficulty to Kabila's main money launderer and relational breaks in the relationships between that guy and, and many of the companies. This is fantastic. Major ray of hope. Again, think that 500 years, no one challenged this. Now we're challenging it. Third ray of hope. The Department of Justice has opened an investigation into the, large, the largest mineral company in the world, Glencore, for the corruption in Congo. It's incredible. Fourth, several international banks, and hat tip to my colleague Sasha Lezhnev on this one, have, have, have cut off access to the bank in Congo that's controlled by Kabila's brother that was used to launder millions of dollars. So this whole concept of shutting people out of the international financial system, we do that when we want to shut terrorists out of it. Terrorist networks out of the international system. We do that when we want to try to force someone who's trying to acquire nuclear technology or nuclear weapons. We don't use that for human rights. We don't do that for peace. Well, it started. That's very exciting. That's a ray of hope. Again, 500 years. We're just getting started here. Fifth ray of hope. A number of high-level officials from Congo, the guys you want to What'd you do? That lockup. <laughs> I like his, all he had to do was this. We knew what he meant. A um, number of those people have been blocked by something called visa sanctions, blocked from traveling to Europe and America, where they've, you know, many of the spoils of their corruption have been uh, lodged through luxury houses and uh, uh, their families and all the rest of it. So it's a start. It's something. Sixth ray of hope. We've talked a little bit about this. Some, many of you know about it. It's Washington, D.C. We all know about the Dodd-Frank Law. Well, there was this component of the Dodd-Frank Law that was specific to conflict minerals, and it forced companies to, to reveal, basically, where they got their raw materials for the products they're making if they were sourcing from C Central Africa, from Congo and the surrounding region. It's just purely transparency. Purely just saying, after all these centuries of stealing, can somebody please tell us the truth about where they get their stuff and what goes on, where they're getting it? And that has had a catalytic impact on a number of companies and on supply chains. And that has led to the seventh ray of hope, 80%. Well, it used to be, just 10 years ago, the UN found almost 100% of the mines were controlled by armed groups in eastern Congo, epicenter of the war zone. Now, today, as a result of that law, as another and, 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 and companies taking proactive measures to get ahead of the law, 80% of the mines of these three T's, we call them tin, tantalum, and tungsten, they're in all of our electronics products. 80% of those mines are now conflict-free, free of armed groups. It's progress, which has got to move. Eighth ray of hope, the pressure on some of the neighboring countries. It's not just China and America and Europe that have been feeding off of Congo. It's even the neighboring countries. First and foremost, sadly, a country that has been, and a government that has been uh, 
held in great regard for many of the progress, much of the progress that has made since the genocide in 1994, Rwanda, has been one of the worst violators, one of the worst exploiters of Congo's weakness and, and lack of rule of law in terms of the smuggling and, and uh, violence that has occurred. So the pressure that the United States and Europe and other countries put, placed on Rwanda and Uganda as they were extracting very violently uh, the minerals in, in Congo has helped to uh, literally end one of the biggest insurgencies in all of Africa, a group named the M23, which, whose human rights violations had few parallels in the entire world at the time at its height. It doesn't exist anymore. Like that's a pretty amazing sign of progress. The ninth ray of hope, one of the worst of the worst warlords, leaders of that M23, who was terrorizing the country just a few years ago, nicknamed the Terminator. That gives you a sense of where he was, what he was up to, is now in the hay, facing charges in front of the International Criminal Court for all kinds of crimes against humanity. And the 10th, and I'm, boy, I could just go on forever, but the 10th, <laughs> I had to stop at 10. That seemed right, fair to the audience. The 10th, okay, I'm telling you, six months ago, if you had to bet, and I wonder what my colleagues would have, how much money they would have put on it, this president, Kabila, was going to change the Constitution and allow it so that he could run again for a third term. That was pretty much conventional wisdom. Now, you, you have the actions that the Treasury Department, the action of Congress, the action that other, the European Union put on a number of key leaders in Congo, a number of financial pressures. For the first time, Kabila has to start asking, wow, I've stolen a lot. I got a lot of money in a lot of places around the world. Is this going to be put at risk? So he said, okay, step back. Doesn't change the Constitution, but maybe he's still going to run. We don't know. Just a few, whatever it's been, maybe a couple months ago, he doesn't run. Okay, it's not the, um, we still got a long way to go. He's got a puppet in there who's going to run in his place, a sort of uh, Putin-type scenario. Um, and we'll see how that goes. But, but again, we're just, there's signs, there's signs of progress. Seedlings for what I believe is the coming change. So get involved in this thing. Join Shushu and Fidel in their appeal to, to be involved. The book has all kinds of places where you can, it says, it says the same thing over and over again, you get bored after a while. For more, to, to take action, to find out more, to learn about this particular upstander, to, 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 to congostories.org, a book website, imagine that. On the, on the book website, in the book website, or however you, whatever, preposition? Is that a preposition? It's been a while <laughs> since grammar school, as you can tell, the aging process. And, um, but that, uh, 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 in that, on that book website somewhere is actions you can take. Towards the companies we're buying products from, towards our elected officials. Do five minutes of your life, and you're part of the movement. That's all it costs you. You, you, we can't, of course, change 500 years of history in, in a couple of months or in a night, let's say. But 
But as the beneficiaries and the consumers of Congo's exploitation, we are linked to that country as far more than we ever could have imagined. And we all can play a role in supporting these upstanders like Fidel and Shushu and the forces of change. And I look back, in, only in my lifetime, to be a part of, when I was young, to be a part of the anti-apartheid movement. And have President Mandela, when I worked with him on the negotiations in Burundi, have, have him tell me, you guys, you students, you young people in America gave me hope in Robben Island. When you were out there getting arrested in front of the embassy, when you were doing these things, they helped bring an end to apartheid, what people all over the world were doing, especially young people. Blood Diamonds campaign, same thing. When the world said, you know, enough is enough. We're not going to buy these diamonds if they're fueling this horrific human rights violations, these terrible atrocities. And it stopped within a few years. Once we stopped buying those blood diamonds, those wars ended. There's many examples like this. Congo's next. I am sure of it. For five centuries, five centuries, the story of Congo has not been pretty. But I believe together we can change that story. Thank you yes. very much. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.